Open up your Bibles to John 12. John chapter 12, that's where we will begin briefly. I hope it sets the stage for the rest of our lesson. John chapter 12. It's good to see everyone. Thank you for uh, all the leaders in worship tonight and this morning. Uh, it's always good to be the house of the Lord itself and to worship in the house of the Lord. John chapter 12 is where my Bible is opened up. Let's look at verses just 24 through 26. Jesus is speaking, and he's going to be talking about his death in just a second. But Jesus is talking, let's look at verses 24 through 26. It's on the screen as well. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That is a lot in just a few verses. I don't know why we would expect anything less from our Savior and from Scripture. That's a lot. I find here, setting the stage for our main text, I find there's four beautiful, glorious, comforting promises, and there are four life-altering commands from Jesus, or demands. And it's right here in the text. You can just look in your Bibles with me. You just want to set the stage here. The first thing you see is your life will bear fruit if it falls like a seed into the ground and dies. But that's how our life will bear fruit. The second thing Jesus points out is you keep your life forever, all eternity, if you hate your life now in this world. That's how you have eternal life. You will be with Jesus. That's a comforting thought, to be with Christ if you follow him. If you keep reading, I have it on the screen, verses 27 through 35 of John 12, Jesus is speaking of his coming crucifixion. His death. This is following Jesus to Calvary, as it were. It's very ominous and daunting. and could be a thing full of fear, even. And the fourth thing Jesus says, kind of an odd, impossible, almost blasphemous idea in Caleb's mind, in saying that God the Father would honor you, me, and honor us, if you serve his Son, Jesus the Christ. Those are the things. Four beautiful promises and four startling, life-altering commands from Christ. I hope this will clarify our main text tonight as we're focusing again on marriage. It's the renewal through God's story of Scripture. I mean, that's the story of cross. It's the story for every Christian, married or not, if we have saving faith, that death ironically and gloriously, brings forth life. Well, it's good to see everyone here. If you're visiting with us, we're just grateful you're here. We have a guest card, by the way. You can fill it out or scan it. We just want to say thank you for being here and worshiping with us. And with that in mind, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 now. If you're using that Red Pew Bible in front of you, that'll be page 1140 in the New Testament portion of your Bibles, page 1140 in that Red Pew Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If any of you have been to a wedding or even heard of a wedding, 
you're probably familiar with this passage. You've probably heard the entirety of 1 Cor 13 read aloud. And for some of us, it's probably up there in a top five, ten, three maybe, you know, types of passages or chapters. Right? It's a chapter about the weight of love. Love never fails. All these things will pass away, but not love. It is eternal, and the message is beautiful. This is the essential for Christian couples and for every Christian in any situation. I'm not going to read him, but verses 1 through 3, Paul says, you could give yourself up to die. You could give away all your money to the poor, and if you don't have love, you've gained absolutely nothing. That's a startling remark from the apostle, right? Uh, So you would think love ought to define and encapsulate our entire lives, married or not. But certainly if we're married, right? George brought up this morning, Ephesians 5, husbands, love, love your wives as yourself. Paul told Timothy, have the older women teach the younger women to love their husbands. This is better define our marriages and better define our entire lives for anyone at any stage of life to be like Christ, for God is love. Let's read this verse. It's a beautiful set of verses. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And next verse you got, love never ends, or love never fails. Powerful, beautiful. This ought to be a prayer in our marriages and in our lives. This needs to define our lives. Um, I was talking about this with the teens. Whoever's teaching behind the teens, I think it's the three and four-year-olds, you're doing a great job. I'm hearing them recite the fruits of the Spirit very loudly and enthusiastically. But right, you could tie in Galatians 5, 22 through 24 right in here that this is a spirit-filled life. And if your life in marriage doesn't, I know we make mistakes, if it doesn't consistently, normally look like this, you're not walking in step with the Spirit. There's no other way to say that. And when, even if consistently, right, we've got a life of growth, when we fail in this list in our marriage, I failed this week, this list of this marriage, right? When you fail, you've got to recognize that's my flesh. It is not of the Spirit of God. These verses are literally, literally life-changing. Literally life-changing. And as George pointed out in Ephesians 4 this morning, you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We can grieve God when we're not living like this. We do grieve Him. Now, if you're like me, I like, I like definitions. It's important to establish definitions before. That way we're all on the same page, whatever the subject is. And I want a definition for love. We could go to several other biblical passages to define love. Paul doesn't do that here. He kind of gives a broad net, bunch of categories in dealing with the situation in Corinth. Instead of just a one-sentence, one-verse definition, you count them up. I got 15 15 descriptions for what love is, and I guess for what love is not. Here's what love is in 15 descriptions. That's a, that is a lot. He packs them in there, just punch after punch after punch. You got 15 of them. But woven through here, when I was reading this, just verses 4 through 7, it made me think back to where we began in John 12, 
with Jesus' analogy of the seed dying in the dirt. Now, a couple things on the screen here. You, can, you got two categories in this list. You kind of, like I said, you got love is, love is not. There's a few categories that stand out to me. On the positive side, love is durable. It lasts. It endures all things. It's patient, bears all things, believes, hopes, endures all things. It doesn't quit. Uh, this morning, Chris Mills with the, with the teens was asking, hey, what does the world think of marriage today? And the answers were right, sadly, which was, well, if you don't like it, whatever. You can just get on out of there and find someone else better. Love endures all things. It is durable. And then the list of nots, right? Not jealous or envious, not arrogant, so on. Your huge thing to me standing out is that love is humble. This is big. This is rough. Naturally, we're not this way. It's not rude. You don't offend. Um, it doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable, not, not easily annoyed, provoked, angered, and not resentful. Um, you don't rejoice at what is wrong. And then kind of in its own category in my mind was love is kind. Again, Ephesians 4, be kind to one another. And it rejoices in truth. Love loves truth. So that's far from a one-verse definition. It's a broad catch-all for behaviors and, and more importantly, attitudes, hearts. But as lots of you know, the church at Corinth, at least at this point in history, overall lacked love. There was a lack of love, and it showed itself in very different ways. But it lacked love. Just a few things that popped across my mind. They're not boasting in the Lord. They're boasting in men. Uh, they're arrogant with their so-called mercy. In chapter 5, there's a man living in sexual immorality, and they think it's a good thing that we're being, quote-unquote, merciful. That's not love, to let my brother or sister walk away from Christ. Um, they're unwilling to endure and bear all things. They take each other to court. They're suing each other, as it were. They insist rudely in their own ways. Uh, they offend their brothers and sisters, eating the meat offered to idols. Paul says it's really up to you, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8. That's your personal conscience. But why offend and hurt the conscience of your brother or sister? Same thing today. Why am I going to put my brother or sister in Christ in a position where their conscience is not clear? Whatever is not a faith is sin. That's pretty rude. Uh, we're talking about being impatient. Chapter 11, the Lord's Supper, the situation there, when they're gathering for worship, those who have leisure, probably those who have money, they're eating the Lord's Supper before the other Christians, probably the poorer Christians, could even get there. They eat so much of the Lord's Supper, they get drunk on the wine. I mean, wow, what a situation. By the way, if that happened in our church today, people would probably split the church five different ways to Sunday. And Paul's saying, we're going to figure this out. And we're going to have unity. That's staggering to me. And then in chapter 12, they're arguing. There's kind of envy and jealousy over whose spiritual gifts are better. And that's right. Chapter 12, Paul says the eye needs the foot. The foot needs the eye. And we all need each other as baptized believers in one body. Right? Again, Ephesians 4. A lot of Ephesians 4 connecting here. A lot of lacking in love in the church of Corinth. And we could probably come up with more on the list. And they're very different scenarios, too. Catching all realms of their life. So this is why Paul probably doesn't give a, you know, 
God is love, 1 John 4. Here's how God loves us, sending his son. He gives that kind of message, but here it's just kind of a catch-all. He's not merely defining it. He's applying it to the Corinthian situation. And this lesson, it's not to us, but it is for us. It's preserved for us by the Spirit. The lessons and applications for our church today and for our marriages definitely will fit and uh, ought to be practical for us. I wish I could go through each one. Uh, we can't. That's probably for your sake before we get all greeky and stuff. No one cares. So let's just, let's just keep it simple, the things that stood out to me. The ESV says love is patient. Does anyone out there, by the way, have an old King James? Any old King James people? Someone does. They're ashamed to raise their hand. But you won't, you'll, have, you'll have charity instead of love, right, in the King James. The new King James will tell us that love suffers long. I don't know about you, that doesn't sound very inviting. Do you want to suffer for a long time or a short time? We're all going to pick, I want to suffer for a short time. I don't want to suffer for a long time. Love is patient sounds like beautiful. Love suffers long. You're like, ah, I don't know about that. But that, that's a good definition of right, patience here. Because what is the flip side of patience? The flip side of long suffering. I think it's in the middle there of verse 5 that love is not irritable. The NASB says love is not provoked. The NIV, I actually like this one a lot, the NIV says is not easily angered. So if you're impatient, you're probably irritable, provoked, and easily angered. Versus if you're patient, you suffer long. That's two sides of the same coin, right? They say patience is a virtue. And that's a tough one for us, right? Um, if, you get, if you're good at patience, come help me. It is a discipline, right? Um, now think about Get outside of the church building. Think about your everyday life. Outside of the church building, whether it's school, stay-at-home mom, dad with the kids, work, errands, you're retired, whatever you do, whatever the day-to-day life, Monday through Friday, as it were, think about just your ordinary schedule and tasks, okay? When you're trying to get stuff done, whether it's going on date nights in the movies or get to work or church or whatever, does anyone here just love being interrupted, Probably not. Certainly not by your spouse, right? No one loves to be interrupted. We hate delays. Um, You miss your connection. Definitely if you're leaving Lubbock, you might miss your connection. If your flight's delayed, Amazon doesn't get its promised two days package delivery. How dare they? You get a flat trying to get to work. Your kids are late to school. Or worse, you get in a car accident or something. Man, uh, you're trying to watch the game 3-2, bases loaded, bottom of the ninth, and boom, Wi-Fi goes out, right? And we get, right, it's annoying. No one enjoys that. And that can be in even more serious situations than just, you know, a Wi-Fi or a flat tire. Uh, man, we and I, Caleb, strongly desire trouble-free life. You get irritated when stuff is interrupted. I, I, we love smooth planning and pleasure, right? All things are smooth sailing, right? We like that. And my nature, devoid of God is to complain and grumble, right? Like Israel in the wilderness, and irritated and provoked, and even provoked to anger when things don't go my way. And sometimes things will pile up and, you know, spilt milk, so to say, or break the dish in the sink, and you lash out over something. It's just, we get annoyed. Things don't go my way. It's a piece of pride, for sure, and entitlement that things should always go my way. But Scripture says love is patience, and it's not irritable. It's not easily angered. That is quite contradictory to our flesh. 
I want to suffer short, right? Not long. So what happens, or what should, if I'm in the faith, what should happen to Caleb's desires that lead him to be irritable and quick to anger? What has to happen there? That part of me and us has to die. That's the seed in the dirt. It has to die. This is the lifelong battle of flesh versus spirit. Biblical answer is easy. Put it to death. Uh, Again, what George said this morning, easier said than done. Romans 8.13 is pretty blunt. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Pretty simple. And I feel like in my life, I've skipped over this part. I got it highlighted there. But if by the Spirit you need God, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is what Jesus is talking about with the seed in John 12. You need the Holy Spirit of God to put to death fleshly deeds, and that way we will paradoxically live, as Jesus said, forever and with him. Love's patient, it's not irritable. So desiring trouble-free life above all must die. Desiring self above others must die. I cannot live the way the Spirit would lead me to live if I'm focused on the flesh, a.k.a. usually me, myself, and I, which I think takes us to the root of sin and the root of all failed and failing marriages. That would be pride. Love does not envy or boast pride, bragging. It is not arrogant. Remember Paul said in Colossians 3.5 that covetousness is idolatry. That's a cousin there with envy, uh, with jealousy. Uh, Paul, 1 Corinthians 8, people were eating meat offered to idols. There's Poseidon up there on the screen. Uh, hopefully you remember me, I don't know, it was a podcast or something saying this. Idolatry up there, having the image of me being more like God versus, you know, the other way around. Whatever culture, whether it's Baal or Zeus, the point was, what will this God or goddess do for me? What will I get out of this? There's beautiful blessings that come from the Christian life. But remember, please remember, if why I love Jesus is I have a nice family and work and have money and life is good and that's why I have Jesus, that Jesus is a means to an end. You don't have Jesus. You have an idol. Paul suffered. Do I want Jesus himself? It's a big question. Uh, That's why love does not boast. That's why love is not arrogant. It's not bragging. It is not prideful. We love to be the center of attention. That may be different for introverts versus extroverts, but we like attention to some degree. I like to be liked. I want to be admired. We love it when people notice our successes. We love it probably just as much when people uh, don't see my failures. That's like just as good. Uh, We don't like to be criticized, even if it's constructive, let alone humiliated. But we sure love to be made much of, don't we? That's pride. Subtle pride is rampant in any culture. And I think in our culture, subtle pride is probably more rampant in our social media use. Um, We just love it, right? Look what's going on in my life. Post about everything, everywhere, every second. By the way, people probably don't care as much as you think they do posting stuff on social media. Um, It's like, look at me. It's not inherently bad. It's not what I'm saying. But this is kind of what, you know, the culture, especially without God, is focused on. 
you know, check me out. Even extreme self-pity can be a form of pride. Everyone come cater to me. You can get those on extreme ends. That could be another uh, sermon. But Scripture says love does not brag, and it's not arrogant. Love is directed outwardly, I think is that message. Outwardly, love properly is directed, not inwardly. This flesh naturally loves self. That's my inclination without God to put me above others, even your spouse, right? If true love is directed outwardly, then true love means it requires death to really love my spouse, love my neighbor as myself. It requires me to die. I mean, look no further than Jesus. He loves us and literally died because he does love us. Attention-seeking, self-exaltation has to be put to death. Loving the way Jesus loved means my desire or my intention or trouble-free life must die. How about this point? Love does not insist on its own way, ESV. NASB does not seek its own. CSB is not self-seeking. Not self-seeking. Paul, Scripture, Jesus, God, is not telling us that being happy is wrong. You see, Jesus you know, has a party at a wedding. It's not wrong to be happy. As a matter of fact, we didn't read it in verse 3 of 1 Cor 13. Paul says, you gain nothing if you don't have love. It's okay to desire gain. The question is, what am I desiring to gain? That's, a, that's really the question. Love's not self-seeking. True love doesn't seek its own. It seeks others. It seeks the work of God. It's not about self-gratification. Again, the social media stuff. I mean, this is a scary thing to me. Uh, I'll use extreme ends. Uh, I apologize, but I mean, if you go all the way over here to adultery, it was about satisfying me. Not about a fallen God, not about my spouse. And, and then all the way over here, I mean, a mile and a half down the road over here, but still, if it's, uh, I'm trying to think of something silly, I always pick the restaurant we go to. Both of those things, extremely far away, both of those things do come back, horrifyingly enough, to a root cause of love for me more than my spouse or more than my friends or my neighbor. Love seeks the good of God in others, not just the comfort of self. I think we can privately apply this to our own lives and marriages. Look at our passage again. Love's patient, kind, does not envy, doesn't boast, not arrogant or rude, doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable, doesn't keep track of wrongs, not resentful, it rejoices with the truth, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, love endures all things. So I'm going to put the application on you guys, okay? I know some of you are taking notes and some of you have phones. Take out your phone, take out a piece of paper, look at this list on the screen, look at the text in Scripture, actually do it. A lot of people aren't doing it if you actually want to participate. Write down, or I guess you can. Thank you, Robert. You got your phone up. Thank you. Um, write down in, on paper, at the very least in your mind, ask yourself, where in this list can I improve? Where in this list am I the least like Christ? And where can I be more like Christ and more conformed to his image? Not your spouse, not your kids, not your parents, not your friends, not anyone else here. You. Because between you and God, very least, 
Think where in this list, just verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, can I improve and be more like Jesus? Am I patient and kind? Even when I'm frustrated, being long-suffering means dying to my desire for that uninterrupted life. Do I envy others? Having no envy means dying to the desire for what does not belong to me. Uh, Do I naturally brag and boast and put myself at the center of attention? Not boasting means dying to the desire to always grab attention for self, especially when we succeed. Am I arrogant? We all struggle with this at different times and ways. If you're always asking your spouse or your friend to apologize to you, and if you're like not doing that, we're probably struggling with pride. You think, I don't have anything to say sorry for. Dying to arrogance means dying to the desire to think much of self. Uh, you and I, we're not that great. Actually, we're probably even worse than what we think about ourselves, even on our best day. And yeah, as uh, well, what's that guy's name? As the theologian Tim Keller says, you're also loved way more by God than what you think at the same time. Are we rude? I mean, that could be really practical. We're not talking about joking around, name calling and anger and walking out and violence and interruptions, you know, all this kind of thing, sarcasm, all that is fleshly. Romans 8.13 said, if that's your lifestyle, if that's your lifestyle at home, Romans 8.13 says you will die. That cannot be the normative pattern of our marriages or anyone in any stage of life. Not being rude means I need to die. I'm still working on this. I need to die to my impulsive desires to express myself offensively at the cost of others. Isn't it just great? I'm not talking about like having fun. You're in a real heated debate, and it feels good to zing someone, say, I gotcha. Right? Sin feels good in that moment. And you're just, it will lead to death. I need to die to that. Do I insist on my own way? Not seeking my own way means dying to my dominance of preferences. Am I easily irritated and angry? I need to die to the idea that I'm not going to be bothered. I love the saying, be easy to please and hard to offend. I really like that. Be offended by the things God is offended by, not our opinions. Get in the way of the gospel. Um, Am I resentful? I like the NASB better, so shout out to the NASB fans. Are we taking account of all the things I've suffered, I've been wronged by? Love does not do that. Not being resentful, not keeping score means dying to my demonic need for getting revenge. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Uh, Romans 12, Paul also said, revenge belongs to the Lord. I think we want revenge because we're scared they're going to get away with it. Everything will be dealt with. And by the way, if we got revenge, if God had his revenge on us, if justice were dealt to us, we'd be in big trouble. Something to think about. Uh, We're free not to be bitter because the Lord will take care of that. And again, Ephesians 4, there it is again, George, right? Ephesians 4, what is it, verse 31 or 2, uh, let go of bitterness. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, I really like endures all things. That means dying to the desire to run away. Right? We want to quit. That's why we walk out. Why people get divorced. Quit. Love has to endure. Because true love never ends. The love of God 
has never began, let alone has the love of God never ended. He is who he is. This is a steep price to pay. I mean, are we willing to even pay the price for love? A lot of times we think, especially in our culture, in America, it benefits me to be a Christian. That is going to change even more. That is not the normative pattern in Scripture. Why would you think we have Christ without cost? That includes our marriages. Love has a price. It includes, even if we're not married, loving those who don't treat me like they love me, co-workers, neighbors, church family, your kids, your parents, family, friends. How about your spouse, right? The greatness of God is not glorified in hollow efforts to keep commandments. Any other religion and ideology can give you that. Here's five-step process to be a better you, right? That doesn't make God look great. That makes you look moral. I mean, that's not following Jesus. The greatness of God, all his glory, is exalted when we love him more than anything else, right? This is coming back to the attitudes, not just the behaviors, to our hearts. We will never devote our lives to our spouses as we should, let alone to Christ and bring glory to our Father in heaven until I see, till we see that the ultimate essence of evil is not being satisfied by God. Right? Idolatry. That's what leads to the mix. How many times do we try to be good? You're fighting lust, anger, lying. I don't know what you're fighting. Um, how many times do we try to do that and it's just be better and we only look at the deeds? The deeds are the fruit. You've got to look at that too. But if, we, if we're not looking at our heart, I mean, the devil's just going to laugh at us all the days of our lives. I need to look at whom I'm satisfied by and whom I love. I know we sin, but do you hate your sin? Do you want to kill it, right? And do I love Christ above all? That's the battle. It is the heart. And so when you think about essentials for love, for couples, or for any stage in our life, I mean, the essentials that I'm pulling out of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 for what love is and love is not can really be summed up by saying, I need to die to myself. Again, flesh does not like that. We need to die to ourselves to love like Jesus loved, especially in our marriages. Love does not insist on its own way. Love dies to its own way. For... Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if we die to self, it, we, will bear much fruit. That's the challenge for the Christian life and certainly the challenge for our marriages. And that is our invitation. Jesus showed God's love by dying on a tree for us. And we too can die to self. That is a Christian life of transformation, to be more like our Savior. And by the way, with the invitation being open, if you're not a Christian here tonight and you've yet to die to self, you can die with Jesus in baptism and be raised with him to walk in a newness of life. The last thing I'll say 
great theologian. I hope one day to meet him. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that guy lived it. He was killed by Nazi Germany. This is the Christian life, and it's certainly got to be the message for us in our marriages. Come and die, and you will live. That is the comforting promise of Jesus. If we can help you in any way in your spiritual life, let someone know or come forward while we stand and sing.